a lot of times you'll hear me preach about earning passive income because that's what music licensing is about. Ultimately getting you to a place, and this is why I started License Your Music at licenseyourmusic.com. You'll hear me say this a lot. It's about finding you a place where you can earn passive income and have creative freedom. Okay, that all comes down to public performance royalties. That is the passive income I'm talking about. And the performance rights organization, also known as the PRO, that's responsible for collecting those royalties on your behalf. We'll talk about why they exist, why they were set up, why they're so important, how you need to get set up right away with one of those if you're not already. And we'll also talk about royalty-free music. This is a relatively new thing in the sense of the last decade. It's come around with the advent of YouTube and how YouTube has really boomed. Uh, Royalty-free music targets YouTube content creators. We'll talk about why they exist and how they're disrupting the marketplace, making a lot of composers and songwriters uneasy. I'm super excited for this episode. Let's dive in. Welcome to the License Your Music Podcast, where I'm here to help give you all the tools you need to license your music for film, TV, ads, trailers, and more so that you can earn passive income and obtain creative freedom. I'm your host, Jody Friedman. Thanks for spending some of your time with me today. If you haven't been by our site at licenseyourmusic.com, please come by. And if you're looking to actually break into music licensing, I put together this free ebook called How to Get Your Music Heard by Music Supervisors. It's completely free. It's a five-step guide where I put together five steps for you to follow. So go ahead, download that, follow those steps, and start getting heard now. Passive income. Today, we'll be discussing the foundation for that passive income which are performance rights organizations, also called PROs. We'll talk about their importance to our community of songwriters and composers. We'll go over how you can sign up for one today, which you absolutely need to do that if you're not signed up yet. The PRO, again, stands for Performance Rights Organization. They are also called Performing Rights Societies. Why are they called that? It all goes back to copyright law. When you create and compose or write a composition, which is defined as a body of work consisting of music and or lyrics, you are immediately entitled to several exclusive rights, which we'll have to go over in another podcast. That's probably a deep dive. But in this one, we're going to talk about one of those basic rights that you, as the creator of that original work, of that song, of that composition, and original being the keyword here, you're entitled to. That right is the exclusive right to publicly perform your work and to be compensated for those public performances. Now, does that mean in theory that nobody else has the right to perform your work in public without your express permission? Yes. According to the law, it does. But why would anyone want to do that? Why would you write a song, lock it away, not let anyone perform that song in public ever? Nobody would ever want to do that. Uh, No one would ever know about the song. It would dither away and die when you dither away and die. So you don't want to do that. You absolutely want people to publicly perform your song so people hear it and it gets out there in the world and it gets heard, right? And of course, you want to get paid for it. Well, imagine if you were regulating that, if you were responsible for keeping track of 
you know, once your song's out there in the world, whether you put it up on YouTube or release it on an EP or whatever it is, it's out there in the world and people then find it and they love it and they want to cover it and perform it. And how, how could you keep track of that? It's next to impossible, especially in today's digital age. Um, you know, you, you have to keep track of it. You'd have to invoice, invoice them. You have to ask them, how long did you play it for? It's a whole thing. No one wants to do that. And that's why the performance rights organization was born. That's why it was set up to assist in the collection of public performance royalties for songwriters and composers. It's next to impossible to track. Even in the early 1900s when this was set up, they recognized we could never track that, but we need to be compensated for that right that we have to our works. So the first PRO in the U.S. was born, and that was ASCAP. And I just want to, as a side note, we're going to be talking about uh, U.S. composers uh, U.S.-based PROs. I have limited knowledge outside of the U.S., a little bit about APRA in Australia and PRS in the U.K. and MCPS. But this podcast episode is geared towards U.S.-based composers. So we're going to talk about the U.S. PROs, as that's where I'm based. So their sole job, the Performance Rights Organization's sole job, is to collect monies from broadcasters to collect royalties, public performance, per, public performance royalties, and to pay you those royalties. Uh, they're collecting that from TV networks, production companies like Amazon, YouTube, Netflix, Hulu, Lionsgate, Fox, Sony Pictures, Disney, also radio broadcasters, local venues where music is performed at a live venue, Madison Square Garden. They have to... Uh, submit cue sheets, which we'll go over later in the episode, to ASCAP and BMI and CSAC. We'll talk about all this. So if this sounds like foreign language, don't worry, we're going to talk about it. Um, That means that each and every single time one of your songs is performed in public, you get paid. Same at the Home Depot, same at the grocery store or in the mall. If your song's playing on the overhead speakers, that is a public performance of your song. That's the right you have to collect on that performance. You want to sign up with one of these performance rights organizations and assign them to be your administrator to collect for you for these rights. Okay, you only get paid if you're signed up with a PRO. You need to do that. I'm not all too familiar with the sign-up process outside the U.S., as I mentioned. So again, just talking to U.S. composers here. In the U.S., there are three PROs. ASCAP is the first one. It was founded in 1914, over 100 years ago. It's called the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. It is literally the only society run by its members. It's run by songwriters and publishers. They have about 11.5 million songs in their database at the time of this recording, which is January 2021. Happy New Year, if you're listening to this in the new year. Um ASCAP processes over 1 trillion public performances every year. It's a massive operation. To sign up for ASCAP, again, at the time of this podcast, it's a $50 application fee. It's nominal, uh, definitely worth the 50 bucks. Go ahead and sign up if you want to sign up with ASCAP. Your other options. CSAC was second. It was founded in 1931. It's the Society of European Stage Authors and Composers. And remember, in in the 20s and 30s, it was a lot of um, stage music, uh, theater shows on Broadway, 
and big band and jazz was coming around. And um, so that's kind of the time of this. That Why is it called the Society of European Stage Authors and Composers? And it was founded in the U.S. Um, the repertory originally consisted of works from European publishers. It evolved to include American publishers' catalogs as well. Uh, and they are the smallest of the three U.S. performance rights organizations. Over a million songs in the repertoire, um, you get a bigger piece of a smaller pie if you're with CSEC. Uh, CSEC, however, is by invite only. You have to be invited by another composer who's a member or another publisher and introduced to them. And then they review you and talk to you and decide if they want to admit you. Uh, as a writer, I was with ASCAP. I switched to CSEC. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, BMI, founded in 1939. BMI is the third one. Broadcast Music, Inc., 1939, about the, the turn of, the, of um, not the turn of the century, but the, the beginning of radio, when radio was really starting to happen, Broadcast Music Inc. was set up. Um, it's a not-for-profit PRO, and so is ASCAP. And it's currently the largest in the U.S., representing over 17 million works. You absolutely want to join one of these. BMI is free for songwriters to join. So if that sways you towards BMI over paying the 50 bucks for ASCAP, so be it. Um, I recommend you do your research, ask around, ask your fellow writers their experience with ASCAP, their experience with BMI and CSAC, and uh, you know get their opinions because really they all really do the same thing and they work off the same principles. So um, there's subtle differences between the three of them. But uh, they're they're really subtle. So as a writer, you can only join one of these PROs. You can't be a writer with both ASCAP and BMI. Okay, you can, um, like in my situation, I was a writer with ASCAP and I left ASCAP, I think back in 2015, and I went to CSAC. And I left my old works with ASCAP. So my old works, while I was an ASCAP writer, are still an ASCAP system. If you look me up in ASCAP, I will come up as a, as a writer with works registered to my ASCAP publishing company. But when you see my writer's name, it says Jody Aaron Friedman CSEC, because I'm now with CSEC. Um, and then I have works registered in CSEC that are not, not part of my ASCAP repertory. So you can't be a registered writer with multiple PROs. But you can have a catalog that is with one PRO and a catalog with another. So if that makes sense, uh, I hope it does. Um, super important that you sign up. You may even have royalties out there for your music, uh, be it songs that you've written yourself or songs that you've co-written with others. And these are making their earning royalties possibly. And they're going unclaimed just because you haven't registered. So go out, register now, or maybe at the end of the podcast, I want you to listen. So don't do it right now, but um, you know, go out and register. It's super important. Uh, let's discuss how they work, okay? Just so you understand what a PRO does. Let's say that I am ABC, the network ABC, huge network in the U.S. Uh, I air a TV show called the License Your Music Comedy Hour, and during that show, I license a theme song. And uh, then there's a composer on the show who creates a ton of cues for every episode and they, they play throughout the one hour show and we use, you know, let's say 45 minutes of score from this composer, random cues, some rock, some pop, some underscore, it really doesn't matter. The genre is really irrelevant. Uh, then at the end, we bring on a live band the way, you know, Jimmy Kimmel does and um, 
Jimmy Fallon show. And we go on, we bring the live band and they perform a live song and the show ends and that's it. And we do this every week or maybe every night even. Now there's a producer on the show, one of the producers who's responsible for filling out a cue sheet. And that cue sheet is a document. It's literally a document or an Excel file that's then converted to a PDF that lists the composer's name, the cue name, how long it aired for, was it in the background? Was it instrumental? Was it a vocal track? Was it the main title? Was it a visual vocal, meaning someone was singing it on camera, like when the band performs? Was it a visual instrumental, meaning someone was playing it on camera? And some other info goes on the cue sheet. And then my job as a producer of that show is to submit that cue sheet to the network, ABC, who then submits it to ASCAP, BMI, and CSEC. ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC file that cue sheet away. They have a whole department that handles cue sheets and they process it. And then quarterly and in CSAC's case monthly, they pay out performance royalties to their writers and publishers. And if you are with, let's say you you are the songwriter and someone else is the publisher on a song and it airs on the License Your Music Comedy Hour on ABC, your song airs for one minute and you earn $1,000 in royalties. from that goes to the writer, you. $500 from that goes to the publisher, whoever the publisher is that you assign to be your publisher. If you're your own publisher, you get the full $1,000. $500 for the writer's share, $500 for the publisher's share. So the PRO gets the cue sheet, they examine it, they process the payment for all the songs that air during during the broadcast, including that live performance from the band. That is a public performance. That show on ABC is airing in homes throughout the whole country and sometimes around the world when they get syndicated and they rerun and other networks pick them up. And every time it airs, it it gets processed. I use ABC as an example of a network that has what's called a census survey with the PRO. This means that they pay out for each and every single use of a song on their network. Uh, There are some instances, I believe, and... um, I don't have it in front of me, but you can look this up online. You can go to ASCAP or BMI site and look up census survey or sample survey, which we'll talk about in a minute, and see exactly what pays out as a census or a sample. But um, the difference is if you think about like Nielsen, the company Nielsen, which would survey radio, they would also do census surveys or sample surveys. And with, with ABC, what it means is it's a census survey that means every song and every episode gets paid out, whether it's airing at 2 in the morning or uh, 5 p.m. prime time at 8 p.m. on a Sunday or on a Tuesday. It doesn't matter. It's a census survey. Every single use gets paid for. Other networks that are smaller, like local cable TV, independent radio, like college radio, even some shows on networks like CNN, which we'll talk about in a minute as anyone listening That knows my story, knows that I used to work for CNN and I had a placement on CNN. It was my start in this business. And any stations not monitored by a company called Numerator, which is formerly known as Competitrack, they are on a sample survey, a random sample survey. So this means that they are randomly sampled during a quarter and they pay out royalties only for uses that occur during the sampled period. So imagine this, imagine like spinning a wheel, you've all seen it, you know, at a, at a, you know, a circus, you spin a wheel and if it lands on a prize, you get the prize. With a sample survey, it's kind of a similar thing. They, they just 
I don't know how they select it, but they choose a certain date. So when I was working for CNN, I worked on a show called Nancy Grace in 2005. I was an audio tech on the show, and I ended up by circumstance getting a, a chance to have a song as a theme, used as a theme song for the show. I compose a theme song for the show. And if you don't know that story, go back and listen to the Meet Your Meet Your Host uh, podcast. And it's, it's a great story. And um, anyway, so... 2006, my wife and I quit our jobs. We moved out west. On the way across the country, I got my royalty check for that placement. It was $30,000. $15,000 for the composer's share, $15,000 for the publisher's share. Um, I assumed naively, I naively assumed that I was going to get $30,000 a quarter, every quarter to follow. I don't know why I thought that, but I did. And the next quarter came and there was nothing. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it'll come the following quarter. The next quarter came and there was nothing. So I'm calling my ASCAP rep saying, what's going on? Why is there, why are there no royalties? Well, she explained to me the concept of census surveys and sample surveys, which I'm explaining to you now. Uh, so hopefully this saves you a ton of frustration, um, like what I went through. <laughs> so... The sample survey, what it meant was they surveyed in, I think it was fourth quarter of 2005. They surveyed October 15th, 2005, between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m. The show Nancy Grace aired, it happened to air at 5 p.m. on that date. My song was in the rundown, in the cue sheet. It was the fourth segment of the show or third segment of the show. At the top of the segment, it was a theme song, which had a heavy weighting in terms of royalty calculation. And I got randomly surveyed. So they paid out retroactively for however long it was airing on the show at the time it got surveyed. Now, it surveyed October in 2015 as the date. But the date that they were surveying this and paying out on was three quarters later. So I was getting paid in second for second quarter of 2006. So they went back almost two years for episodes that aired nightly, seven days a week on CNN headline news for Nancy Grace. And I got paid out retroactively for all those dates, more than 365 days of theme song usage. That's why I got such a high royalty calculation. But it was random. It was a sample survey. And the reason that CNN was on a sample survey was because their blanket fee that they pay to ASCAP is much lower than the fee paid by ABC. And I don't know exactly how ASCAP negotiates their blanket fees with the networks, but I imagine it's based on the budget that the networks have and how many products they produce and... um, how many songs they use. And that's that. They just negotiate network to network on the blanket fees. They pay out the royalties based on a pool that those fees go into. And I happen to to win the lottery, if you will, for getting that payment. Okay. It's not like that all the time. If you get a theme song on an ABC, NBC, or CBS, that's like getting a hit song. It really can be. So um, not to be underestimated the value of these royalties. So with all that in mind, let's shift gears and talk about royalty-free music. There are companies out there like Epidemic Sound, Soundstripe, Artlist, and others that sell royalty-free music. And I'm not, you'll find with me, guys, I'm not really 
uh, I don't like to place judgment on people or companies. When someone has a business idea, I respect that. It's a business idea, whether it works or not, good for them for trying it. I have a lot of respect for entrepreneurs. Um, so these companies, they have this idea that they're going to start selling music that's royalty-free, meaning they bypass the PRO. They don't go through the PRO. When the PRO comes to them, um, they say, well, our writers are not affiliated with you or the songs in our system are royalty-free, meaning they're not registered with you. And they somehow are allowed to do this. Um, in the U.S., uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and add that outside the U.S., if you're a writer with PRS in the UK or APRA or SIAE out of Italy, you cannot do these types of deals for your songs. You have an exclusive deal with the performance rights organization that they administer your public performance rights on your behalf. In the US, your deal with ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC is non-exclusive. That doesn't mean it's not exclusive in the sense that you can sign up with both ASCAP and BMI, like I explained earlier. It means that you have the right non-exclusively to assign your performance rights to somebody instead of going through ASCAP, BMI, or CSEC. Okay, so that's where the concept of royalty-free music was born. And it has to do with YouTube content creators. YouTube, which has been around for about a decade now, maybe even more, um, the content creators are huge. And they don't want to deal with this idea of having to send a cue sheet to ASCAP every time they use a song. They don't know what to do. They, they don't know what a cue sheet is. They don't know what a publisher is. Um, it becomes a headache. So rather than do that, they go to one of these royalty-free sites. They pay the eight bucks or sometimes two bucks to license a song and they're done and there's no royalties. And look, some of you listening are probably thinking, wow, that's brilliant. I, I want to join. And I'll tell you that while it may seem appealing, unless you have stellar music that gets used a ton, it's extremely saturated. Uh, it's very easy to get lost in the mix, not to mention there's no backend royalties. So you may make a couple of bucks here and there, but overall it's not I, I would say it's not really a career focus. It should not be a career focus. Maybe supplementary, but uh, or supplemental. Sorry, that's not a word. Supplementary, elementary. Uh, supplemental is not a, is is the proper word. So maybe uh, it will be supplemental income. But you know, as a a music supervisor, I won't be using one of these sites because they don't really bend on the terms and conditions. Uh, I went to them on a project. I was supervising a uh, an EDM documentary called Waiting for the Drop, and they had a Artless track temped in place. And the producers asked me to go back to Artless and try to uh, negotiate with Artless to get the, them to amend their agreement to our terms because our attorneys had certain terms they had to abide by to get a distributor on board for this documentary. And Artless refused. They just couldn't. They wouldn't and they couldn't. So we had to pull the song from the project. So um, as a music supervisor, I won't use one of these sites. And not to mention the quality overall, it, there's a lot of garbage to sort through. So when you're on a project looking for music, it takes a lot of time to go through all the royalty-free sites and find what you need. And you can't usually reach out to someone there and say, hey, get me your best ideas for the scene. I want something that sounds like this. They don't care. They don't have the time. They're going after YouTube content creators. And that's that. Um, 
I know that most, if not all, supervisors avoid them like the plague. So by being a part of the royalty-free music libraries, you will not have access to the high-profile TV shows, the films, the ads, the trailers that license your music is really focused on, and music licensing in the traditional sense is focused on. <clears throat> the other issue with them that has composers concerned is that it offsets the marketplace. It makes it a bit more difficult for ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC to go collect their annual blanket fees from broadcasters when there are royalty-free companies disrupting the market. Should this ever, and I don't think it will ever get to this, but the concern is, should this ever become the norm, it's possible that the public performance royalties would cease to exist and at least become nominal, or at least become nominal, and make it more difficult for composers to survive. And this would mean less composers and less content. I really don't see this happening. I think there's a big divide between royalty music libraries that provide for YouTube content creators solely, for the most part. Uh, maybe Twitch creators, although Twitch now has their own system. As some of you know, YouTube has their own system, like library that they're offering to YouTube content creators. It's separate. It's a separate world from my world of music licensing and sync licensing. And my colleagues, they don't bother with the royalty-free sites. It's kind of embarrassing to use their sites in your projects. It doesn't have the cool factor. And you can still find really amazing music at affordable rates from libraries that are not royalty-free. And respect the composer's rights to collect their rightfully due public performance income. It's kind of similar in a sense to what's happening with Spotify. And if you go back and look over the past several years, there have been a ton of lawsuits and settlements where Spotify has paid out billions of dollars in settlement fees to composers for illegally or not properly compensating them. Um, I don't know this for a fact that this happened, but the story goes that Spotify basically sprouted up and they just started using music and they went to, I don't know if it was the publishers or labels. I think it was the labels. They went to the labels and got the, um, the deals they needed with the labels, but they just forgot about the publishers. They did not bother with the publishers and then they blew up and it just became a huge mess and a huge problem that they had to clean up. And it's still echoing today, but the bigger problem and, and guys don't, Quote me on that story, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how the story goes. Anyway, um, <laughs> in January of 2019, Spotify's rate was 0.0038 cents per stream. That means that 1 million streams, 1 million streams would earn $3,800 for that song. Of that, publishers get half. $1,900 to the pub, $1,900 to the songwriter, or in some cases, songwriters, when there's 16 writers on a song, or when there's three writers on a song, that $1,900 is split up amongst those songwriters. What types of songs get a million dollar streams? Hit songs. How common are hit songs? Not very common. It's very hard to have a hit song. If it was easy, we'd all be doing it. Traditionally, hit songs get a mechanical rate when you sell a song on a CD or as a download in iTunes, there's a mechanical rate set by the uh, Library of Congress and the Copyright Board of 9.1 cents per sale. If it's under, I think it's four and a half minutes long, 9.1 cents. And half of that goes to the publisher, 4.75 cents, and half of that to the writers, 4.75 cents. So <clears throat> a million in sales traditionally 
would equal $91,000, almost a hundred grand for a hit song. A million streams, which is the same thing. I know you say they don't own it, but come on, you listen to the song, you stream it, you're listening to it whenever you want. It's just like owning a CD, probably easier than owning a CD, which is part of the problem. But a million streams equals $3,800, a million sales, $91,000. There's a distinct difference there. It's unbalanced. It's a big problem. I know the National Music Publishers Association, among others, are fighting Spotify for better rates constantly. It's getting a little better. It has gotten a little better, but it's still just awful. Imagine if you're Taylor Swift. I'm going to use her as an example a lot because I admire what she does. And imagine you're her and you have songs that are earning multi-million, you know, multi-platinum songs. And you're earning a total of 50 grand for that song. That doesn't all go to Taylor Swift. She's got managers, agents, publishers, labels, advances. You know, she might be left with nothing after that. And when touring dries up, what is she left with then? Merchandise, maybe? Yep, some of that. But come on. This gal has put her blood, sweat, and tears into her career. And she's left with very little to show for that from Spotify and their main product are songs. So it's unbalanced and there are people working on making it better. I'll leave it at that. And here I was saying I wasn't going to pass judgment and I just passed a bit of judgment, but hey, that's okay. I truly believe it. So, all right, circling back to music licensing. It's the great thing about licensing is that it exists based on lawful copyrights. You own it as the songwriter and the creator of the work. And with those rights come the right to publicly perform your words, which you can and should assign to a PRO to aid in the collection of your works. Oh, and I didn't mention that the US PRO has deals in place with every society around the world, which they call their sister society, which I love. And it means every single time your song airs around the entire globe, that local society in that territory collects and filters the money through the USPRO and you get paid. Other societies are Jazzrack in Japan, Gima in Germany, a fantastic society, Stim in Sweden, PRS in the UK, APRA in Australia, Sabum in Belgium, Coda in Denmark, Akum in Israel, Buma in the Netherlands, Tono in Norway, Kamka in South Korea, Suisa in Switzerland. There are so many, many more, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a vital part to our survival as composers to reap the financial rewards for our works, and having public performance royalty income is a big part of that. And why are they called royalties? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it originated back in Great Britain for hundreds of years Gold and silver mines were the property of the crown. So every time you mined these metals, you would pay the crown a royalty, basically a tax based on that. And it represents passive income. Royalties are nowadays tied to intellectual property. In the case of music, it's copyright. Why is it intellectual? It comes from our human intellect. It comes from our mind. You may be noticed when filing taxes in the U.S., you'll get a Form 1099, and it lists your earnings as usually non-employee compensation if you're a 1099 contractor. But there's a box that says royalty income and rents. It's intended for you to list non-procured royalty income, passive royalty income. So if you ever earn royalties from ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, that's considered passive royalty income. And it also says rent, rent slash royalty income. You'll hear me always comparing music licensing to uh, and copyright to being a landlord and leasing out your property. 
it's the same thing. Rent is very similar. It's passive income, and that's why it's called royalty income. So what are you waiting for? Go sign up, join a PRO, collect that royalty income. Thanks so much for tuning in today and spending some time with me. I'm Jody Friedman, your host of the License Your Music podcast. If you want to know more about how to get heard by music supervisors, come by our website, pick up our free ebook. It's completely free. And if you like what you hear, if you're listening on Apple Music or Spotify, whatever it might be, please leave us a review. That helps us out a ton. Join our Facebook group at License Your Music with Jody Friedman, our Instagram at License Your Music, and of course, our YouTube channel, where you'll find all sorts of valuable tips, product reviews, and other things about music licensing. Thanks so much for listening. Stay cool. Peace.